Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to be, live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, with a sort of kind of rewind and a sort of kind of guerrilla podcast, but really a new episode. This is material that's never been on the podcast before. It's a video that I did all the way back, when was it, 2018, April of 2018. There's a link to the original video if you want it in video form in the show notes today maybe go look at it just for the hell of it because it was long before i started doing keto and man i was fat i was on my back porch and I, I answered a ton of questions about aquaponics a few of them complaining hostile but most of them legitimate like i want to know more it stemmed from a discussion that went on on the regenerative agriculture facebook page where there's a lot of people want to know more about aquaponics and there's a lot of people are butthurt because it doesn't build soil that type of thing so uh, in an effort to make sure that people think whatever they want, do whatever they want, I don't care if you do or don't do aquaponics, but to make sure that people who wanted to be fully informed were fully informed, I did this particular video, and it went over fairly well. And as I was trying to figure out what to bring to you this week without just throwing five rewinds at you, I started thinking about it. And yesterday, I gave you a new show, but I was able to knock it out really quick because I was just riffing on what it's like to run an event. Today, we're going to pull the audio out of this video for you and, and just basically let you listen to it. And then we'll end with the revolution is you in full because we don't have a song of the day today. Um, that makes everything easier for me. The only thing I wanted to give you was something I told you Friday I would give you Monday and then I didn't. And that is a quote of the day. This one by Marty Rubin, who we talked about basically the problem with willful ignorance last time. And that would have fit this episode well because there's a lot of people that have a lot of negative things to say about both aqua and hydroponics that are flat-out willfully ignorant. They don't want the facts. They don't want their paradigm shifted. They don't want to consider new options. But I like this one, too, for this. And this was, when I looked up Marty Rubin and saw, well, that says this guy put out, this was a quote I almost wanted to just give away right away and, and you know sur supplant the other one. And it's just a simple one-liner. Beware of becoming a pawn in your own game. And I'm not going to talk about how that applies to. Um, I'm not going to talk about how that applies to this episode. I could. I actually want to, since I have no idea. This is uh, this is Saturday that I'm recording this. You're listening to it on a Tuesday. Multiple days have gone by. The ass clownery is hitting. Like the clown car is running full speed into the brick wall right now with the election. And so so many people are so caught up in this, and the whole world is at stake. And if my side doesn't win, and don't think that both sides don't feel that way. They do, right? Both sides are sure the world is over if their master doesn't become the master of all or remain the master of all. That is becoming a pawn in your own game. You think you are independent. You think you are free. You are a, a slave falsely believing yourself to be free. Your game needs to be designed such that only you get to play in it. That everything else that comes into your game are interactions, they're edge interactions with the systems, the state, and others, where you maintain control. You don't want to be the pawn in your own game, but I'll take it further than that. You don't want to be the knight in your own game. You don't want to be the queen in your own game. You don't want to be the king. You don't want to be the rook. You don't want to be the bishop. You don't want to be any of those pieces in your own game. You want to remain the hand that moves them all. 
self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence in all ways. We do it by growing our own food, yes. We also do it by running our own businesses and reducing the amount of tax we have to pay to the system. We do it through cryptocurrency and being smart about how we protect and preserve some of our wealth and keep some of our transactions uh, independent and private. We do it in all the ways that we talk about here. We set up our own board. We run our own game. And we, like they, play both sides of the board. The only way to win at this is to not go on the board. You have to remain above it. Good things to think about as we talk about one really great way to produce your own food and build ecosystems on your property today with aquaponics. Here we go. This was, again, originally recorded in video on April of 2018. Everything about it is still relevant today. If you want to see the original video format, it is available in a link in the episode, and it is now on Odyssey. So if you want to check it out there and maybe tip me with some LBC coin, that would be great. Take care, guys. I will be back next week. I'll have something for you tomorrow. I won't tell you what it is yet, but it'll be cool, and it'll be kind of like this one. Hi, folks. Uh, Jack Spirico here, founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Group on Facebook and uh, best known, I guess, as the host of the Survival Podcast, uh, permaculture teacher, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, I call myself a, an amateur aquaponics uh, person. I am, I'm not an expert on this, but I have been doing this uh, for about two years, and I've tried to bring a perspective of about 10 years of, of permaculture to my walk through aquaponics. And I actually used to have pretty negative view of aquaponics myself. Well, not really negative, not the way some people seem to, but I didn't think it was for me, and I thought there were certain problems with it that don't exist, and uh, I didn't really see the point in some ways of doing something like aquaponics. I figured it was something you had to fiddle with a lot, and I see a lot of uh, misinformation, misunderstanding, some stuff just not quite right, some stuff absolutely factually wrong out there. Uh, and even though I'm about to be traveling for a week, I, I, I've decided to take about an hour on this weekend and uh, respond to and ask me anything. I know those are usually done on Reddit, but I'm more of an audio, video kind of guy, so I figured I'd answer them here. And I have a whole bunch of questions, about a page and a half of questions I want to uh, go through, and I'll do my best with them. I don't have a complete answer for everything here, but I do have a pretty good answer for most of it. Uh, let's start out with, uh, what kind of fish do you use? Have you ever tried implementing non-fish creatures like crayfish or scud? Uh, I have not. Some people do. I think it's, uh, it's useful. Uh, understand that I work mostly with back, uh, backyard size systems, uh, systems that are going to run somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 300 to 1,000 gallon systems, not large commercial scale systems. I don't know how viable those types of things would be in a commercial scale system. It would be very difficult, I think, to, to, to use them there. Um, crawfish eat each other. Uh, they also eat a lot of other things like snails, so they're actually good in a system like that. A couple in a fish tank that has a snail issue is a really good thing. A lot of pet stores uh, use crawfish, actually, because they will eat snails. Of course, a lot of fish will eat snails, and the fish I use tend to eat snails pretty good themselves. Um, but I have a friend uh, named David who does uh, aquaponics in his backyard and has various tanks and things like that. And he'll actually buy feeder prawns, and they grow into these great big, huge, beautiful prawns, these big, long things, and they're, they're very good to eat. But it's more of a, an extra, an add-on. It doesn't really... It's like you're not going to run a system on one of those. We have some ideas we might play with, some hacks and things. I was thinking about building some kind of like an apartment structure so everybody can have their little hole to hide in and be angry at each other in, and that might work better. But in general, I use fin fish, and the primary fish that I've gone to using are 
locally sourced, locally caught sunfish. Bluegills, green sunfish, fish called the pumpkin seed, shell crackers. Uh, those fish adapt readily to aquaponics. They, they, they take to eating the feed that they're provided very, very quickly. Uh, they adapt well, they're hardy, and they're free. And they're so overpopulated in so many ponds and streams throughout most of America that taking them out of there actually is good for that ecosystem. The one place we won't even use them for anything other than in our bait tanks because the fish are this big and they've been in there so long stunted like that that they won't grow out no matter how much you feed them. But there's plenty of other places we get them where they grow in a good-sized fish in about 18 months. And you have zero cost, and they're always available. And if you lose some, you can always go get more. And if you eat some, you can always go get more. So that's the primary fish I use. We also do use tilapia. Um, we have white Nile tilapia. They're my favorite tilapia out of the ones we've played around with. Um, and they grow fast, and they get big, and they're very hardy. But they're a minor part of what we do now, and if we want more, we can put some into a fish tank and do our own breeding with them. So anyway, next, a guy says, I'd like to see the energy calculations. I have a feeling that these big aquaponics projects use more setting up then they use more energy setting up than they will ever provide. Dude, that's not a question. That's a claim. And uh, all I can tell you is here, when we look at our energy audit of how much goes into putting one of these together from an expense and from an energy standpoint and from an ongoing energy standpoint, which is mostly just the pump, um, that what we get back is completely worth the expenditure. Now, on a like a giant commercial aquaponics system, I don't know. I do know this. If it's not economic, economically viable, it wouldn't stay in business. So there, there has to be at least that component to it. But why don't you go out there and do the calculation for yourself instead of making an accusation? Uh, and there's really like only one or two kind of accusational questions in all of these. The first one was really kind of a trolling question about the flow hive and honey. And I want you to know, your question is going to get answered at the end because I think it'll actually be a lot better place to ask it. By the way, while that was a trolling question, it's a great question. It actually makes a really great point that I'll, I'll wait till the end. But in the end, there isn't that much of an energy input. There are systems that I've seen that are 2,000-square-foot systems, and they're running on an 18-watt pump. Once we pump the water up, gravity does the work bringing it back. And so that water can basically be ping-ponged and rebounded for energy many, many times. There is, of course, you know, like, well, how much energy went into the IBC? Well, how much energy went into the IBC is kind of irrelevant because the IBC is not a new IBC. Somebody made that for another industry. They used it. At the end of its life cycle, they sold it for next to nothing. We buy it and put it in the system. The pipe, yeah, it takes energy to make pipe. And I don't know if you've been to Home Depot or Lowe's, but there's millions of metric tons of that stuff sitting there. Right? That's an industry that exists for itself. The aqua, Backyards Aquaponics contribution to the PVC pipe industry is a milligram of a millisecond of a microgram of, of nothing. So it, it, it's just not really, I think, very relevant to the whole other than does the system produce enough to justify it? And when you look at our systems and you look at the amount of food that comes out of it and you look at in a climate like ours, we're eating something out of our aquaponics system every day, 10 months out of the year, I think that speaks for itself. Next, do you see any reason why using a male and female PVC fitting threaded together and JB welded through a bed container wouldn't work just as well as a bulkhead. Have you had any situations where being able to remove your bulkheads has been necessary? Uh, we've had it where it's been necessary, and we've definitely had it where it's been nice. The one thing I love about our systems, and this is something that shocks a lot of people, is about 90% of the fittings and pipes in our systems are not glued. 
And that means if we decide, hey, I would rather have the system over here, or I'd rather move this bed over there, or I'd rather pull this component out and relocate it to another system, there's nothing to cut. We just pull it apart and take it there. We pretty much only glue uh, the stuff that if it, if it fails, it's catastrophic, or it's kind of a pain in the butt to, to put back together. And generally, it's reducer fittings are the place where that is most often the case. So most of our stuff's dry fit. By the time you buy your two PVC fittings and JB weld them together, you will have as much money into that as you will buying a bulkhead. A bulkhead is made for that purpose. That's what it does. Uh, and I think they're worth the seven to nine bucks a piece on them. You can also use uniseals. I'm not real familiar with them, but plenty of people use them. And I guess the more places you're going to need one, the more it makes sense economically to go there. Um, but I would not JB weld anything together that I might ever need to take apart, no matter what it is, period. I do like JB Weld water weld, though. In these systems, we've had like a hole in a tank, and you make up some of that, boom, done. So, yeah, that's, that's quite useful. Uh, next one, why are so few making it a profitable enterprise? Well, actually, I don't know of a lot of large-scale aquaponics systems in the United States, but the ones that I know of, uh, like Tanya Sawyer in, in, uh, in Colorado and Rich Hastings in East Texas, are profitable. Uh, they've been running for multiple years as profitable, and they're able to expand their operation as their market expands. And they're able to adapt to their market so they don't over or underproduce. Uh, so I think it actually is quite profitable when done correctly. However, I would say like that's not how you're going to judge whether or not anything in ag rate now is valid. Because the average person that files a Schedule F, which means if you have farm revenue, uh, the IRS tax form that you file is a Schedule F, loses money. That's a fact. And that's commercial, that's organic, that's regenerative, that's permaculture, that's, you know, uh, restoration agriculture, anything. You look across the board, the average agricultural person loses money or they make very little money because it is an, a, a highly competitive, ultra-competitive market. We'll say more on that a little bit toward the end. But so, first of all, that's just... That is the business of agriculture. It takes a certain kind of person to make money. The other thing is, a lot of those losses are somewhat phantom losses, depreciation, etc. Get a good CPA and tax attorney, as I always say. But it may be that we don't have enough people in America that are motivated to do it. Because I don't know of a lot of them that have failed. And when it comes to failures, if you want to see economic failure... Look at permaculture farms. Look at organic farms. Look at the back-to-the-land movement. There's massive failure there, and that's okay. It's going to take failure until people work out what to do to succeed. What I will say about that, though, is it's interesting to me that you have someone like Tanya or Rich making a go of it with aquaponics. They're growing very natural food. They're using organic feed for their fish. They're doing everything that you could ever want somebody doing aquaponics to do. And we have people like the, the, the monkeys flinging crap at them, like, oh, it's not good enough. It does. It's not, you're not building soil, whatever. Okay, look, not everybody's going to build soil. They're doing a hell of a lot more than most of the people bitching about it. Um, and yet they are making a profit. I even see this when people are growing to the ground. I see people complaining about what Curtis Stone and other spin farmers are doing. Well, you're using plastic blocker and you're not doing perennials. They're growing annuals, dummy. That's what you can't compare perennials and annuals. There's a you know there's a huge market for annuals. Most of what people buy in stores for food that's vegetative is annuals, and annuals feed people fast. Perennials feed people long term. There's a place for both of them. But I've seen people bitch because Curtis Stone uses weed blocker and he tills the soil off. And so whenever we do find somebody that's economically viable, people are like, oh well, it could be better. It shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And it's always the asshat that's not doing much of anything, with a few exceptions. 
Um, but I see plenty of profitable enterprises using aquaponics. And I think that's actually why some people are upset about it. If nobody, if everybody did it went broke, there'd be nothing to bitch about, would there? Uh, how many mineral atoms do you use, like iron, chelate, potassium, etc.? Uh, I actually use two products. They're chelated forms of iron and zinc and uh, calcium and magnesium. And I use those in everything that I do, not just aquaponics. But honestly, I haven't used any aquaponics in over a year. My systems, because of how they're set up, use very little of a mineral adjunct. I keep the, the chelated mineral products on the shelf. And if I see something like chlorosis in a plant or something, I'll treat that plant, either foliar or if it's an aquaponics, in the water itself, or it's an aquaponics wicking bed, I can do a soil soak in my aquaponics systems. My aquaponics systems use a lot of soil. Uh, they build a lot of soil. They make a lot of compost. And this is, you know, where I think some people get confused between hydroponics and aquaponics. And even when they say they know the difference, they don't know the difference. They think, well, aquaponics is hydroponics with fish. If you're trying to get somebody to understand that baseline definition, that's not bad. It's not bad at all. But it's not accurate. Because hydroponics uses almost 100% of hydroponics I've seen are using no soil and no media. And if they're using any media, it's something like pea gravel with a trickle through. I've never seen a hydroponic system with an ebb and flow bed in it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying I've never seen it. And I've never seen a hydroponic system growing in soil because that's not hydroponics, right? So when you take and you have a system that's built on lava rock and soil and worms and microorganisms and beneficial bacteria and fungi like we do, you get plenty of minerals. And as those minerals are breaking down and made bioavailable, Some end up coming out of the water into the soil, and some come out of the water and the, the soil and the rock into the water and get distributed through the whole system. And if we do add something like iron chelate or something like that, when we add a little bit to the system, it goes everywhere. And that's where we can grow higher density. And we can produce a lot more in a few square feet than you will ever produce in a typical garden, even when we're doing it in soil, which is, again, a mutton boat I do most of mine with. Um, how do you get your wife on board with it? Make it look pretty. And if you look at some of my videos, some of our systems are very attractive. We build timber frame ponds that we call Miyagi's because they look like something from Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi's Backyard. And they're gorgeous. I can't see anybody objecting to that. And, yeah, I have my uh, wicking bed and ebb and flow beds just kind of sitting up on top of it, and they're big and black and what have you. But you could use anything for that. You build a box and use an EDPM liner for that, and you can make it look however you want. So make it look pretty. That's how you get wives on board with most things. Uh, next, what is the average return of investment? I don't know. What's the average return of investment for people that invest in the stock market? Some people are really stupid about it. Somebody, some have good financial advisors. Some, most people have what you call financial liars. Most people are investing in 401. That's all about how it's, it's practiced. Here's a couple of ways I can gauge ROI, though. If I go to the produce section of the grocery store, and even if I buy conventional produce, not organic, or I go to the farmer's market and buy low, no matter what, if I go and I buy enough to feed myself on top of the meat that I'm consuming with vegetables for a week, we're into it for a hundred bucks. Easy. And I don't think people realize it because they buy it in pieces, parts, go to the store multiple times, etc. But you start buying peppers, you start buying lettuce, you start buying onions, ginger, etc., you know, For a family of, in my case, family of two plus two grandkids here all the time, it's easy a hundred bucks. So as soon as that tank 
That one bed produces enough vegetation to make up that week. It paid for itself. And the systems pay for themselves really quick when you start looking at it that way. Plus, they're producing fish. Plus, if we do what we just talked about and make it look pretty, that's a feature in the landscape. There's plenty of people with fountains that could have aquaponics instead of fountains. It would be just as beautiful and more useful and more productive and sequester carbon if that's what you're worried about. Another way to look at it is, well, what else do you get out of it other than just food? For instance, I love goji berries. Goji berries are a great plant to grow. And I have a bunch of them growing in the dirt on my property, the soil, in the three acres that's not aquaponics, right? And uh, But they're expensive. They're $12 to $20 a plant. Let's call it $10. Bucks. Well, in an ebb and flow bed, if I take and I say I have $100 into that bed, that's the bed, that's the material, that's everything for that bed. And I take 10 goji cuttings and stick them in there, and two weeks later they have roots like you ain't never seen before in your life, and I plant $100 worth of goji berry plants on my property, that bed just paid for itself. So how clever are you with obtaining your ROI? What if you take those plants, throw them in little pots, grow them out a bit, and sell them for $20 cash? What's your ROI now? Now, would I try to make a business out of that? No, I just want to pay for that component. Once that component's paid for, now everything it produces is ROI. That's called smart investing, by the way. That's how I look at it. Have you ever performed a BRICS test and compared fruit and vegetables grown in soil compared to water? Uh, I will try to not get irritated by this. I am so tired, though, of explaining that most of the stuff that I grow in aquaponics grows in soil. It actually grows in soil. The... The vast majority that doesn't grow in soil also doesn't grow in water. It grows in volcanic rock. Okay, now, gardeners all over the country are buying volcanic sand to put in their gardens. Farmers are buying volcanic sand and, and green sand and other amendments and rock dust to put on their organic farms. We're growing in it. We're growing in it. So... Um, between, and then I don't think you understand the total biology of life. I've never done a BRICS test on anything that I grow. I look at the taste and the flavor and compare it to what you can buy, and when it blows that away, I'm content that I've done pretty good. I don't get highly scientific with this. I'm not reading reports and studies. I'm not actually doing this stuff, producing food and eating it, and feed my family with it. And I think that's for the backyard producer, which is who I'm trying to encourage, I think that's a really good approach. It'd be interesting to do, though, and I'm totally open to it. I just, it's not really been that important to me. Uh, it really hasn't. Um, but compared to what is, I think we have to look at, so the totality of these systems. You're growing, again, in volcanic material and soil. The systems are lousy with worms. You pull back, we cap our wicking beds, or I'm sorry, our ebb and flow beds with expanded shale. So we do volcanic rock up to about two inches from the top, and then we do expanded shale for the last two inches. It makes it easy to plant. You pull that back, and it's just lousy with worms. Those worms are eating all of the excess fish weight so the plant doesn't get to. If the fish are inactive because it's cold, we just throw some feed for the worms, whatever it may be, on the surface, and you come back the next day, it's gone. So you've got that going on. We've inoculated our soil beds with fungi, and to test them side by side, I would inoculate one bed and not the other, and the, fu the fungi we inoculated in one bed ended up in the other bed within three weeks because it went systemic through the whole system, through the water. We pull beans up out of uh, our, our ebb and flow beds, and they're covered with nitrogen nodules from the bacteria. We didn't even introduce the bacteria. It just ended up there on its own. 
So it's it, it's not the sterile system that people think it is comparing it to something like hydroponics. It really isn't. And even the big systems that are mostly doing deep water, those systems generally have ebb and flow in them because the people that are building them know what it does for the health of the total system on, on a variety of levels. Okay, next one. Um, if you're doing wicking beds, is it still truly aquaponics? Yes, especially when you're doing what we call a flow-through wicking bed. So the water's coming from the aquaponics system, being de being delivered to the bottom of the wicking bed, filling the wicking bed up to an overflow point. The overflow point then returns it to the system. That water's constantly flowing through there. Oh, it's energy. Well, it's going to go through there anyway, or it's going to be pumped anyway, because there's going to be a pump in the system. That's what I'm trying to say. This is like, well, now that we have a pump using energy, moving water, how far can we move it and what can we do with it? And the further we can move it and the higher we can get it and the lower our point of return, the more we can do with that energy. So we're pushing it through those systems because it makes the system infinitely expandable. Since we can use things like compost on the surface, since we can use organic fertilizers in that system, right, including ones we make ourselves on the property, because we can make, you know, a manure tea from comfrey and, and, and do a foliar or a soil soak. We can take a little bit of sea kelp and we can make that into an amendment for the soil. That means that we don't have to get everything from the water and we can go as far as that pump will let us and as far as we want to. Um, but since we're moving through that system, it's performing the filter function. You have bacterial colonies in that rock that are making those conversions And if the water that's in there is being wicked up, and it is because we don't water from the surface at all once plants are established. When we put seeds in, we will surface water until those seeds get their roots down about that far so we know they're deep enough in the soil to always have water if they need it. Once that's done, we don't touch it. So the only place the water can come from is the aquaponic system. It goes up into the soil, the plant uses it, and the plant is taking nutri excess nutrient out. The rocks are doing the conversion. Of course it's aquaponics. I'd like your thoughts on making a decorative garden. Figure out what you want it to look like and then build aquaponics into it. That's the best advice. This video is going to go very, very long. I can see that already. So that's the best idea I can give you. But use wicking beds. This is your best friend because now you can take and find some old you know, fencing material that's free and recycled and then build a beautiful-looking containment facade for your wicking beds. Build them out of whatever you can get. I've got 10... Uh, huge, wonderful fiberglass-based uh, recycled things I'm going to be using to make new beds with. They're monstrous. Uh, they give me about 1.5 the surface area of the stock tank beds, and uh, they were cheap. They were 30 bucks a piece, and they were used. They used to be used for uh, feeding uh, for feed material for molasses for cattle. And apparently there's tons of them out there. Now we know to look for them, and that's the you get started, then you find out what's available instead of waiting till everything's perfect. But Those look ugly, but you facade them in, they look beautiful. So design what you want it to be, and then design the water flows into the system is the best way I could say that. Uh, are there any concerns using PVC primer and glue from Home Depot or Lowe's? Is there a food-grade alternative? Well, first, as I said, the majority of the joints in our system are not glued. That makes them reconfigurable. That makes them, in many instances, free because pipe is cheap, money's in the fittings. So if we have to repurpose a fitting, that is a cost. If we have to repurpose pipe, you cut it out and you only lose a little bit of it where it went into the fitting and you could reuse pipe 
over and over and over again. But the reality is if you have a house built in the last 25 years, you're probably drinking water that goes through pipes glued with the same glue anyway. You really are. Um, and then the other side of this, Joseph pointed out this glue is used in reef aquariums, saltwater reef aquariums. They are the most sensitive systems that anybody builds on an aquatics level. If you do one thing wrong with a reef aquarium, you crash the whole system. If it's not crashing a, a coral reef and saltwater fish aquarium, it's probably not worth worrying about. But the reality is there's very little leaching at all from PVC pipe into water. And the reason is because the way pipe works, any leaching generally off-gasses outward. Oh, but it's destroying the planet. Listen, man, if you want to make a list of things that are destroying planet Earth... The, the PVC pipe using, being used by aquaponics, if it's having any contribution at all, it's going to be way down here, and there's a million things over it. There's, there's, and that pipe's probably going to exist anyway. Again, we're just not enough of a draw on that system. But no, you can use the PVC glue. It's just fine. I do try to make sure that I'm careful with what I'm doing with it so that it's not all over the inside of the pipes. That's just more likely to create clogs and stuff anyway. But understand what that glue really is. It's not really a glue in the way we think of a glue. It's not like Elmer's glue where you put two pieces of paper together and the glue itself is what's bonding the two pieces of paper. It's really a form of chemical welding. The primer actually softens the plastic, and then the glue actually causes the plastic to bond together. And that's why it's so effective. Um, once it's up and running, is it pretty durable? And what about backup parts, etc.? I can say my systems are durable. Our biggest problem we ever had was in winter when we would get freezes, trying to keep from having bursted pipes and things like that. And that could be a real pain in the butt, I mean, honestly. What we did, we just figured out how to make the cores of our system resilient so they wouldn't freeze up. And then all of the stuff that we were pumping to, all we do is just shut the water off to it. So I closed two valves, on, for instance, in my greenhouse. I closed the supply and the return valve. In the return line, at the lowest point in it, we plumbed in a T and put another straight valve. We go there when we're, when we're draining that system, and since most of it's um, wicking beds, if there is any winter plants in there, they're not going to die because of this. The soil's still moist. We open that valve, and that drains out the return side. Now there's nothing to freeze and nothing to break. Uh, we did try using a lot of different pumps before I settled on the Lanches dirty water pump that I use now as my primary pump. And we had pump failures, and you have to replace a pump, and that's expensive, and it's not convenient. Um, the Lanches, we've had them running for two years in various systems, and I haven't had one fail yet. I always keep one on the shelf. If you got, Most of you are not going to do what I'm doing. You're going to build one system, and that's the most efficient way to be. Why am I building multiple systems? I am an educational facility. People come here and want to know what they can do. And if I build one giant system, what I'm going to hear is, well, I can't do that. Well, when I bring people here, I can go, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. By the way, for those that are so obsessed with soil, there's over 800 trees we've planted on this three acres. There's swale-based systems. There's all kinds of... One person said, well, when you have all those swales, why don't you just plant your vegetables in there? Because we've been doing it for five years, and since we've been successful with it and the trees are growing, it's really shady under there, and the vegetables don't, don't grow very good in there no more. That's why. That's one reason why. We're also sitting on about that much dirt sitting on a limestone slab which makes aquaponics a great thing for us for annual production and for many other things as well. But they're very durable. I recommend you try to standardize on your sizes. 
We use three different sizes in our systems primarily. We also use two-inch on the return lines. I have never had to, to, to replace anything on a return line. It's very heavy-duty, and no one's ever said, I wish my return lines were smaller. Go as big as you can for the system that you have because that's where you want the most ability to return flow through. But in general, I build systems with one-inch, three-quarter inch, and half-inch. And the three-quarter is only the stand-up pipe. The three-quarter bell siphons for a 50-gallon ebb and flow really, really work well, and that's kind of the sweet spot for the best affordability on a bulkhead where it's big enough to do the job. So we use that three-quarter for that. So really what we want to make sure we always have is a good assortment of T's, end caps, straight couplers, etc., 90s, for your half-inch and your one-inch, or whatever you standard on. standardize on. There's no reason you can't standardize on a single size. But I generally find delivering with a half-inch, but having your primary delivery being a one-inch, gives you a lot more control of your pressures and how much you get, and makes your system a lot more resilient. That's why I've done that. But you're talking about, you know, 20 bucks worth of, of some extra fittings, a few valves in case the valve fails for you. That's actually kind of rare, though, other than freezing. So we have to plan for that. And then a pump. And I really think you should have a pump on the shelf. That That's totally worth doing. because, And it should be the same pump you're running once you establish what you want to run. Because that way you have a union in there. You pull your pump out. You put your new pump back in. And you roll. It makes a lot of sense to set up air stones on some sort of a backup power device so that if the system stops running... You can have air to your fish, and that's all you really need. Your system can sit there for a week, and the plants aren't going to start dying because the water's not running. That's a myth. Again, this is not hydroponics. This is aquaponics. Um, as a nutrient water source, could I pump water directly out of my one-acre farm pond and cycle it back into the pond? Sure you can, but it's probably going to be limiting you mostly to doing soil-based wicking beds. You're not going to get enough nutrient from a one-acre pond to run ebb and flow or deep water and be very efficient with it, you're going to have to then do a lot of amendments and things we're trying to avoid. So I always advise people that have a true pond, do aquatics, right? That's what you want to do. Like you have an aquaculture. You have tremendous opportunity to plant directly into the pond itself, water, chestnut, etc. There are some things that don't need a lot of nutrient to do well, like mint and all. But if you have a pond, throw mint seed around the side of the pond, you'll have all the mint you, you could ever need. But it is a valid source of water for irrigation. And you could put in 10, 100, 1,000 wicking beds on one pump and set the level of them all the same somehow, however you want to design that in, drop water in one end and let it run out the other end, and, and it would be a fantastic resilient system. Does it make sense? I don't know. You have to look at your own system and determine whether or not it makes sense for you. I think that the big thing here is I don't want somebody to do aquaponics because Jack Spirico does aquaponics. I want you to look at your situation and say, does this make sense for me and how does it make sense for me? Um, if you have an outside system and your fish tanks are uncovered, do you see a problem with getting too much rain and having overflow, losing nutrients from your system? <coughs> Probably not. Pro I mean, so, somebody answered this one on Facebook, and I, I don't agree. And the reason is that you have a very low area where you actually are collecting rainwater. Now, all of your, see, it's not only your fish tanks, it's everything in there. Like when you get water in your wicking beds, it's going to then create more water and that's all going to go and it will overflow your tanks. I've never had it really throw things out of whack. I really haven't. Um, if you have fish doing their thing, that cycle is going to kind of come back around really, really fast. 
I don't worry about it. Now, an advantage I have, and this is another reason I selected aquaponics for myself, is our house is on a well. I have no chlorine in my water. And I have 3,000 gallons of rain catchment off my building that's centrally located right where all my systems are that were built there because the rain catches there. So when I need to add water to my system, I don't have to worry about dechlorination. That's an input that's a legitimate input that can add up in a sizable system that I've eliminated, and it's something you should plan for. Um, if you have an outside system, that's the one we just did, is there a concern with bothering any fish by adding extra nutrients to the beds, like the T-Jack suggests for keeping away pests? First of all, I believe in giving credit where credit is due. The garlic pepper tea that I recommend as a pest deterrent is by Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. And you can find it at dirtdoctor.com or just put Garrett, uh, Howard Garrett garlic pepper tea. You can find all of his stuff on Google really, really easily. No, the garlic pepper tea wouldn't do anything because it's sprayed on the plant itself, and it, you're just not going to get enough of it in the system. And frankly, it's garlic and pepper. And sometimes I do compost tea with it as a foliar feed since it's going on anyway. You could dump that into your system, and it wouldn't hurt, and you're not going to dump it in there. If you got excessive with fertility, if you were heaping it on like a farmer in a dirt field, yeah, you could. But the amounts of fertilizer that we use, and this is what people say about inputs, very, very low. We don't use a lot of fertilizer. I buy a little bitty bag of this stuff called Dr. Earth. It's a 444 organic fertilizer with some beneficial bacteria and fungi in it. And what we're talking about is that bed, you know, that bed that's about that big, maybe twice a season, You're talking about maybe two little handfuls sprinkle around the surface. Maybe some blood and bone if that's what you want to use. You're not going to have a problem. If you mixed up <coughs> sorry, a liquid fertilizer and you had a lot of beds and you drenched the shit out of them all, sure you could, you could create a fertility spike. And whether or not your system would be able to deal with it would be based on the size of your system, what's in it, how hardy are the fish, how quick will it recover, that type of thing. If you ever get into a problem with a fertility spike, just do a water change. Dump 200 gallons of water. Oh, God, you're wasting water. I've saved way more than that compared to farming the same amount of food. But anyway, when I dump my water, it goes into a swale that feeds 590 feet of swale, and all of that extra nutrient goes to my trees. Right? So design your systems to be holistic and work together, and then that's not a problem. But, you know, do a 20 to 25% water change if you end up with a fertility spike and it looks like it's causing a problem. I judge that by looking at my fish. We'll get to more on that in a bit. Um, well, actually, we'll get to it right now. What tests do you perform to make sure your system is and stays balanced? pH, ammonia, observation only, what? I don't do shit. Tell you the truth, I don't do shit. I started out doing all of this different kinds of stuff, and I was concerned about it, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, all this, you know, the nitrogen or whatever, and it, it, there's a valid point to it. And that is that when you're starting to system up, you want to see that nitrogen cycle kick in. You see your nitrates and nitrites build and then everything come back to balance. But since I use free fish and we also use goldfish that are like 15 cent feeder fish, when we start up a new system now, the first thing we do is take water from an existing system and dump it in there. And we'll take media from an existing system and make it a component so we have some inoculation going on. And then we take free fish or cheap fish and we throw them in there. And when they stop dying, we put high value fish in. That's it. You can play with pH, like eat with a specific system. You can go more acidic if you're in a very alkaline environment. So you can grow something like blueberry if you want to. That's fine. I run things as they are. My systems are alkaline. 
they're going to be alkaline. My water's alkaline. My rainwater's alkaline. My well water's alkaline. This is the alkaline flats, basically, uh, the, the black prairie of Texas, and it's the edge of it where it goes in a desert. The water that we collect is alkaline. So what? What does that mean? I build my systems, the stuff that grows in them. I plant more of the stuff that doesn't do well. I don't grow. Just like you do with a restoration agriculture project when you're doing it in soil. You grow what does well for your environment that you've created. That said, we found we can grow things you would never grow here. Uh, one of my good friends down in Austin, very similar climate situation, they're growing hops. I have tried to grow hops here. I cannot grow hops here. They have one bed, grows more hops than they can use for their home brewing in a year. I've always had a dream to grow something commercially for a local brewer in Texas that they can't get anywhere else. I thought about doing vanilla orchids in a glass house, and when I learned what you had to do to pollinate them, that was out. I've thought about doing a glass house and doing coffee for a coffee stout. Hey, hops, you could put in a system for almost no money and produce enough hops to supply a local microbrew and actually have local hops where they're not supposed to be. So we can do things that are out of climate or out of, you know, out of geography, and they'll work, but they won't all work. So find what does work and do that. That's how I handle the pH thing. Uh, as far as the, like knowing when the system is not right, if the plants don't look healthy enough, I know there's not enough fish in the system. There's not enough fertility in the system. If the fish are not acting like they should for the situation they're in, if the water's nice and warm, they haven't been fed for a while, you give them some feed and they don't eat, if they're surface breathing, if they're acting different, and that's just, you learn this over time, than they normally do, something's out of whack, you need to take a look at it, and you might need to do a water test at that point. <coughs> I'm telling you, use local fish and local water, you're not going to have much problem with it at all anyway. Oh, let's see. Um, how do you determine water flow rates for the size and type of bed? I don't. I use pipe that's more than big enough to do the job, and I set the flow rate with a valve. If it's going too fast, close the valve some more. If it's not going fast enough, open the valve up some more. That's it. If you got to do a really large-scale commercial system, you might want to sit down and do some engineering work and stuff like that and calculate flow rates and all, et cetera, but use the biggest return line you can, and don't worry about it at a back scale, back, back, backyard scale size. You're just not going to have a problem with it. Um, if you had to start over, is there anything you would do differently? I realize you learned things in the ball, but just wondering this knowing what you know right now. There's a couple things I would do differently. Number one, the day I got on this property, January, over five years ago, I would have started building my first aquaponic system instead of two years ago. I would have started faster because it's done more for feeding my family than anything else that I've done. And it's done more for producing fertility for my property than anything other than the ducks. The amount of compost we've made out of aquatic vegetation is insane. And it's literally no work to do it. You stack it up, and it composts itself. It's got everything it needs. It's got nutrients from the water. It's got fibers for carbons. It's green, so it's got nitrogen. It's full of water. By the time it actually completely dries out, it's already started to break down. It's, it's actually pretty cool. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other thing is, and I might do this with a future system, I don't know. I would really think about on a large, my largest system, renting a jackhammer and an air compressor for a day. I know that sounds like crazy energy usage, but it would be a save energy. Like I said, the lower we can get our sump and the higher that water can be moved by the system, the more it can do on its way back. And 
What makes this a great place for aquaponics is also what makes it a challenging place for aquaponics. Most of the places here, four to six inches, I hit slab rock. I don't mean chunks of rock. I mean slab, limestone, ancient ocean bed. That makes it very hard to grow any kind of annuals here at all with raised beds, even when you bring in material for it. Uh, it's getting better because of all the wonderful work we've done over five years. When we first got here, to put it this way, you couldn't get a dandelion to grow here. That's how bad it was. So aquaponics circumvents that. But you really do want a low sump. So I, I probably would jackhammer a hole somewhere uh, for a sump. And that sump could operate dozens of systems from a single pump. Again, we are doing things not quite as efficiently as they could be by breaking it up into multiple systems. But that is for the student's benefit. And we're willing to take the expense and the, and the, the, the additional work so that when someone comes here, They can look at five different systems and say, this is the one that's right for me. And I believe as educators, we have that level of responsibility for our students. Um, what type of fish do you use? Do you incorporate any life other than fish? We kind of answered that in the beginning. Uh, but again, I want to reiterate, the best fish are the ones you can source locally. They're adapted to your climate. They don't die in the winter. You don't have to overwinter them. You don't have to do any of that crap. Primarily sunfish, and we're down to bullhead catfish and channel catfish. Those are the, the three. There are aquatic fish diseases, and certain fishes are more susceptible to them than others. If you're going to do catfish, I recommend for your larger systems, because there is a fish disease, every aquarium owner is familiar with it, called ick. And it's these little white spots. Your bluegills get those. As soon as the water temperature speeds up, maybe you add a little bit of copper to the system, a little bit of salt, it's, it's, it takes care of itself. They survive. You'll lose one out of a hundred to ick as far as bluegills go because they have thick scales. Catfish, it, it nukes them. When they die, if you didn't know what they had, it looks like somebody shot them with bird shot, like you know, dust shot, all these little pits in them. It's a horrible thing for them. So if you're going to do catfish, you have to think a little bit more about that. That's better for your outdoor systems um, with larger scale systems, more of like an aquatic blend, which a lot of my stuff is. Um, What food have you grown that you have found to be superior to conventional methods? See, I think this is a problem. I'm not looking for superior. I'm looking for it to work and grow for me so I can eat it. So is, it, is, is a, a head of lettuce here superior to a head of lettuce grown in, in one of the greatest agricultural valleys in the United States organically in the soil in California? I don't know. Probably, honestly, from the pro produce I've purchased versus the taste of what I've eaten out of here, It probably is, but that's not my judge uh, of success. My judge of success is lots of food for my family in a natural, healthy way. But there are certain things that I think grow way better. Cucumbers in an ebb and flow bed are insane. I mean, you, you, you one plant and you can't keep up with it. Certain plants that are aquatic in nature, uh, Thai water spinach, for instance, Kang Kong. Oh, my God. One bed this big. One concrete tray bed we were getting a half a bit bushel of Kang Kong every two weeks feeding it to the ducks who were then processing it into manure and manuring the facility when we have excess this year we'll compost it because we don't have the ducks need anymore the chickens only we only have four little chickens i'll never keep up with it um sweet potatoes man you'd think that is the perfect plant for in the ground but in the wicking beds they're fantastic They grow over, the birds eat them off the bottom, and then we get all those greens all year, and then you just leave your sweet potatoes in there for the winter, and when you need sweet potatoes, you just walk out, pull one out of the bed. Uh, that's hard to do in the ground. 
these beds, you know, you can shove your arm that deep in the bed because they're, they're never dried out. You start with good soil, you keep a good soil, you can always stick your arm down in there and do it. So, I mean, those types of things. Um, but I don't think it's superior. I think it's just as good, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for my life to be easier, my production to be higher, and the quality of the product to be just as good. That's what I'm going for. Um, does the lava rock in your wicking bed act as a medium that your nitrifying bacteria live in? How deep is the water in your larger wicking beds? My larger deep wicking beds are two foot deep in total. And let me switch papers here. The, uh, the lava rock layer up to the stratification between the soil and the lava rock is about seven inches. And that's sufficient that, you know, we don't quite fill the beds to the top. We fill them about two inches from the top that we do get enough wicking action to segregate the soil from the dirt. I generally, in my big ones, use perlite, about a two-inch layer of perlite. It's very good wicking action, and it makes a lot of sense to lay down a weed block layer between the perlite and the rock so that if your roots get down into the system, they don't get down in the rock. But if they do, honestly, with annuals, it's not that big a deal because by the time you come through your winter, that those, those roots have actually broken down and contributed to the life of the system itself. Uh, but about seven inches... In a two-foot bed, and yes, nitrifying bacteria, etc. Every and we know this again from growing legumes in ebb and flow beds. And when you're like, okay, that's kind of at the end of its life cycle, and you pull it out, and there's nodules all over it. So you've got that symbiotic bacteria living in there. How does aquaponics compare to the benefits of symbiotic soil bacteria and fungi give to plants? Again, if you're doing wicking beds in your system, you have that. And again, we know it's not just in the soil that it does go systemic because when we added the, the bacteria to one part of the system, it ended up everywhere. You dig it up and you find those same filaments, right? That same fungal action going on. And it was interesting because, like, when I first did the uh, inoculation of the, the fungi, the one bed outperformed the other bed because that's why I did it. I want to see, is it worth this input? And that was great. But then in a couple of weeks, you start noticing it catching up, and I didn't add anything to it. And then you start digging through the wood chips in it, and you start find, finding those mycorrhizal uh, fungi, and that's, that's gone systemic. So all of that stuff happens in there. And I'm not going to say it happens in a giant greenhouse-built system that's 90% deep water. I honestly don't know a lot about those systems. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating systems with deep water, Ebb and flow and soil, all three in them, even if you're using one as your primary production, because it grates that biology and that complexity that we're looking for. Would you recommend a beginner start with goldfish? Absolutely. You know, you can buy 100 of them for 15 bucks. Feeder goldfish from PetSmart. And they'll probably live through the horror of cycling the system for the first time. You probably have to figure out what to do with them. And we found that if you know, they get them about that big, you end up with some of some real pretty fantails. If you call them Asian heirloom carp and you put them on Craigslist for sale, you can get $20 to $50 for one, depending on what it looks like. You know, sell a couple of those, pay for your feed, for your fish for a year. Because these are backyard systems, not commercial scale systems that I'm talking about anyway. Uh, but they're cheap, they're, they survive, they grow into really great looking critters, and they cost a lot less than tilapia. I would also say if you have an easy access to sunfish, go get those. Go get those. If it's legal where you are, trap them, cast net them, catch them with hook and line. We do all three because it's legal here. Check your local legality. But you probably have somebody you know with a farm pond lousy with these things. Again, my caution is when you get to a pond and they're like all that big, 
you know, and there, there's millions of them in there, those fish will probably never grow out to sizable fish. They've biologically adapted to staying small if it's been that way for a long time. We have one deep water tank. We have full of about 200 of those. They're catfish bait when we go trot line it. That's making the system multifunctional. Is there a specific genus of worms for aquaponics? Going through some old episodes, it was said that worms need it moist, but too much they could drown. Well, in an aquaponics system, that ebb and flow bed is not going to drown your worms because it fills up, and they can be underwater for a while. They just can't stay there without the ability to get away. And then when it drops, they're going to get oxygen, and they're going to crawl around and eat, and they're going to be given lots of oxygen and lots of opportunity. Plus, think of how that bed fills. It doesn't fill like this. Boop, stay there. Wait 15 minutes and drop. It slowly fills. So if your worms are uncomfortable with how wet it is, they'll come right up to just under the surface, and your water should not come across the top of the surface. Your water should come up to about an inch of the surface. That's plenty of room for those guys to hang out in, and they only got to hang out in there for a little bitty period of time, and boom, that water flushes out and takes a long time to fill back up. In your soil-based beds, it doesn't matter because they find the place that they want to be. Uh, we use red wigglers, but I've also started using night crawlers. And I started using night crawlers, and we didn't put any of them in there, and they showed up on their own. It's like a great big 12-inch night crawler when we re we moved a bed to a new system, and we we took all the material out of it because a 50-gallon bed full of lava rock, you ain't moving it without creating one of your testicles hanging down to your ankles. I'm saying they're heavy. They're heavier than you ever would think they would be. Uh, so we go ahead and wreck all that material out, and then we take a little bit of it to establish new systems with and put most of it back when we move that component And that's very useful. We found really cool stuff in there. So I go to freaking Walmart because they're the cheapest place I know to buy night crawlers and just get one 18-pack of worms per soil bed every time I put a new soil bed in, and I just dump them in there and let them do their own thing from there. Oh, my God, it's from Walmart. Go dig them up in your yard then if you're going to bitch about that. I mean, that's seriously, some people you cannot please. I'm just telling you what we do, and I'm telling you that it works. And that makes a very healthy system, and I believe in biological diversity. And if you can find multiple kinds of night crawlers, whatever's, if you have something local that's a worm, put it in your system. Watch out for these things that are about that long. They look a lot like a worm, though, and they're really, really kind of tough. And they got a, a collar about that long on them. They're actually a worm parasite from China. And if those show up, you need to, whenever you see one, get rid of it. It doesn't belong here. I'm sorry. Oh, my God, you're killing All right, what trees work in a system? I, you know, I don't know if that's a legitimate question or one of the troll questions. I'm really not sure. But I have seen mostly in tropics and subtropics things like papaya, uh, mango, and banana grown in aquaponic systems. You absolutely can grow trees in an aquaponic system. There's no doubt about it. Citrus would do fantastic. What you would want are either really big ebb and flow beds or you would more likely be better off with really big wicking beds. And there's a couple ways we could do that. We can make them flow through, but since a tree grows tall, and that makes our delivery level kind of not really great, so we have all of this pressure available, all of this fluid available, all of this nutrient available. If we had a place where it made sense to have container trees, go ahead and take yourself an IBC, fill it up. I mean, take compost, just fill it up and compost in it until it's full. Start out with a, a bed of rocks in the bottom of it. Put your pipes into it and put a float valve in it like a Flowmaster valve for a toilet, and then just plumb in a line from your system, and then instead of being a flow-through wicking bed, it's a static wicking bed. And whenever the water level drops, the pump pressure just fills it back up and drops, fills it back up. I'm not going to do that. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I want to grow high-value plantings 
that won't grow well in my soil in my aquaponics systems. And that's mostly annuals. And I was going to do perennials. It'd be things like blueberries and things like that. Small plants that make sense that you would grow as a perennial in a container. Trees, I think, grow best in the ground. But if you live in the subtropics or tropics, I've seen some pretty amazing things done. We have one place here that a friend of mine visited that had a great, huge greenhouse. And they had bananas in it. He said they had bananas like that big around. Not the bananas themselves, the trees. Huge, tall banana trees growing in these greenhouses. So that's another option if you really wanted to do it. I don't think that makes sense, but it can be done. Um, is there a way to use the water from a duck bath for aquaponics? I would not. I would not. That's. If you, I feel like Archer here from the, the comedy cartoon series. Do you want to kill your fish? Because that's how you kill your fish. That's way too much nitrogen. In a fishless system, you could basically do duck ponics with it. If you took a, a certain amount of it each day into the system and somehow automated that, then you would need no fish and you would basically be doing fishless aquaponics with duck manure. You'd have to really, th I, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't advise it. I do have a friend down in Austin, the same person who's growing the hops. They're going to use water from their duck pond. That's a different story. And I don't know that they'll be doing fish with that. And Matt, you need to get in touch with me. Tell me what the hell you're doing. So, ah, you got David looking over your back. If you were doing it wrong, he'd tell you. Um, do you do anything to encourage the beneficial microorganisms? As much diversity as possible in the system. Lava rock, soil, compost, organic fertilizers, fish, multiple species of fish, worms. That's primarily what we do. Um, how important is water pH in the tanks? And do you test your water? Is that regulated by the plants? So that's a beautiful thing. Soil buffers pH. Lava rock buffers pH. I don't, like I said before, I don't test my pH at all. I just don't. Um, specifically, what food do you grow in a flood and drain besides leafy greens? It's my first year with a system. It's about to get too hot for the leafy greens pretty soon. Well, one of the things that I would point out about the leafy greens is that um, you actually will probably be able to grow them later in the year in an ebb and flow bed than you will in the ground. So you will actually, if that's what you want to grow, you can probably grow them longer. But I don't actually see ebb and flow as the best place for leafy greens. Leafy greens do really good in deep water systems. At least some of them do. Your lettuces especially. And that's why your large commercial operations tend to focus on lettuces in, in a deep water system. And they do that because it's fast turnover and it's profitable so they can make enough money to stay in business. Right? But ebb and flow is actually fantastic for tomatoes. It does a great job growing tomatoes. It, does, it will grow almost anything. And it will help you root plants to be planted elsewhere. I actually grow most of my leafy greens in my soil-based wicking vets. They do really, really well in there. Right now i got more than I can use. I'm feeding the chickens and, and, and making compost out of lettuce that we grew from a little seed. Relax, it's okay. Um, so that's so if you're really only limited by like what do you want to grow and what are you willing to give up the space for. And my primary desire for my ebb and flow beds is they contribute to the health of the system as a biological filter. So I've had systems where in my ebb and flow bed I grow mint because it's there all year round. It never dies. And it's, you know, even when it dies back in the cold, as soon as it's warm enough, it starts growing again from the roots beneath the rock. So um, that's my primary goal for them. But cucumber has been the thing that's like a plant on steroids. I mean, you just can't keep up with them. I had the whole greenhouse just shaded in from cucumber vine. We grow beans in them. You can grow anything you want in them, but they, they tend to work better for your smaller plants. Like somebody said, okra, 
You can do it if you want to, but, man, you're going to end up with a really big plant. But wouldn't it be kind of cool to take a burgundy okra, do that in an ebb and flow bed, and plant a bunch of scarlet runner beans around it and let the scarlet runner beans go up the burgundy okra? That would look pretty, wouldn't it? And that's what I'm saying. We can make these things look aesthetically pleasing, and therefore they serve that purpose and then produce food. So we have to think about these multiple functions. Uh, but, but my best results have been cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers. Uh, doing really well in ebb and flow. And most of your commercial operations, they put in a significant amount of ebb and flow, and the primary crop that they grow is actually tomatoes. That brings us to our final question, Greg. So Greg said, thinking he's clever, um, and you are clever for me, Greg, thank you. Uh, Greg said, is aquaponics to farming what the flow hive is to beekeeping? The reason I save this is because it's pretty self-evident, I think, by the end of answering these questions, that You know, the flow hive, if you're not familiar with this, this is bee box that the bees deposit their honey in. It's basically a super. And what it does is it lets you extract the honey from the hive without taking the comb out and spinning it and et cetera. And the problem with the flow hive is multifaceted. Number one, it's way too expensive to be viable. It's way too expensive to be viable. It's like 400 bucks a super. You can build a super for scrap wood, right? So it doesn't financially make sense. It's a gimmick to sell to people. The only way you make money with the flow hive is to be selling it to people that don't know shit about beekeeping. Okay? Um, there's no beekeepers anywhere making money with flow hives. There's no beekeepers anywhere with more than, let's say, 10 boxes using flow hives because it doesn't make sense. There's lots of people producing lots of food for their family with aquaponics, and there's lots of people doing it profitably commercially as well. So right there, that whole uh, thing breaks down. But again, the flow hive is one-dimensional. It's a one thing, and it, it, it presupposes something that's just not true, and that is the work of a beekeeper is in the extraction of the honey. When I was keeping bees, I was in my hives once a month inspecting them. Is there a mite problem? Are they making queen cells? You know, Are they about to swarm? Do I need to split this hive? That's where all the work in beekeeping is. The flow hive is an answer to a problem that doesn't exist. Aquaponics is an answer to a problem that exists. I want to grow lots of food, And my space is limited, my climate's limited, etc. No, Greg, the, the flow hive is not analogous to aquaponics. And the reason it was a great question is it demonstrates something that I've been trying to explain for a long time. And don't see this as an insult. This is true, because I am ignorant to certain things myself. Ignorance of what aquaponics is and how it works by people that live in climates where they can throw some chestnuts in the ground and grow trees. Well, if that's where you live, that's what you should do. And I think everybody should use the technology, the techniques, and the tactics that are most consistent with the goals that they have for the property that they are blessed to have the ability to manage. And I think we are blessed to have the ability to manage a property. I think that is a privilege that we have as a species to be part of that, to manage. I don't care if it's an 84-square-foot patio and you live in the suburbs and you don't have a single bit of dirt that you can access on that property and you build a nice pergola and an aquaponic system like we have, that's a privilege to be able to manage that and produce that food for your family. And I mean privilege in the best way possible. Something you should be grateful for the opportunity to act on. I think it's wonderful. And I think to understand this type of mentality and some of the nonsense going on in, in the world right now, we need to understand something, and that's the totality of what we're actually trying to do when it comes to producing food in a better way that industry is doing right now. And the first thing we should be is grateful for industry that's been keeping people alive for so long. We should understand the scope of what that means. So this is from a presentation I did two years ago, so these numbers have probably grown. It is 
absolute hard facts, and right there's a link I'll put in the video notes for you so you can go look at them. I didn't make these numbers up. But it's about supermarkets and their delivery of food in the United States. One average supermarket in the United States does $500,000 in change in, in sales a, a week. A week. 42,000 individual products on their shelves. It occupies 46,000 square feet. And there's 37,000 plus supermarkets in the United States that make these numbers up. 37,000 supermarkets. They employ 3.4 million people. Annual sales exceed $640 billion. That's 60% of the way to a trillion dollars in supermarket sales a year. And they do this all and stay in business with a profit margin of 1.5%. So you might have noticed a few times my throat's gotten here where I've needed a drink during this one-hour video. This cup, see it with the magic rainbow farting unicorn? Some people in the Regenag, permaculture, organic, restoration, etc. space, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for a unicorn that farts rainbows and makes everything perfect and saves the planet. Well, that doesn't exist. And no one is saying that's smart anyway, no matter what system they use, no matter whether it's swale-based tree-growing systems, it's a key-line adaptive agriculture like Mark Shepard uses, full-on permaculture like they do at the PRI in Australia, good old-fashioned organic farming, good old-fashioned spin farming. Nobody who really knows what they're doing is saying, my way is the best way and everybody should do what I do. Because the people that have made the selection on what they're doing by an evaluation of what is best for them, understood when they made that evaluation that they had to choose what was best for them, and they asked themselves some hard questions. And they probably didn't end up where they thought they would end up. And everybody I know that's successful in significant production of food, from backyard to broad acres, went through that process, or they were damn lucky. And I think it's some of the damn lucky ones that run their mouth the most about this type of stuff. The backyard uh, aquaponics person is not killing the planet. The stock tank that I've used to build my system is not contributing to global warming. Okay? It's not happening. It just isn't. And we need to band together and stop this stupid-ass infighting. You notice I never once told anybody in this two-year journey I've taken aquaponics, you need to go do this. This is going to save the world. I do believe aquaponics is overhyped. Absolutely. And I believe a lot of these little videos they put together, they're misleading. So what? It doesn't mean the technology doesn't work. I believe permaculture is overhyped by some people. I believe every single technology in agriculture has religious, zealot-like advocates of it that overhype it, and therefore when they overhype it, they crap on everything else. I do believe in the principles of permaculture, and I do not think it is a cult, and I'm tired of that joke too. I've seen more good come out of good, solid permaculture design using all of the things, as Jeff Lawton says, that are in the permaculture wardrobe, including aquatics and aquaponics, that I've seen come out of anything else anywhere. And if we want to replace a $600 billion industry, if we want to make a gnat's ass of a dent in a $600 billion industry, we need as many people as possible growing something for themselves in their backyard. This is one way to do it. And it works for a lot of people. And it will not be the best idea for the most people. I would say the best idea for all the people. Okay? We don't really know. You've got to evaluate the situation. You have great soils. It's easy to build great soils. You have the right climate. Yeah, it's going to cost lots of money to put in a basic kitchen garden. Go do that. 
But if this technology makes sense for you, do not let a zealot who hasn't even read the book that they're a zealot of talk you out of it. I hope this has been enlightening. I hope it's been educational. And I hope it's been worth my time. And I know I am a little bit abrasive at times, and I'm not everybody's cup of tea or even everybody's cup of coffee from Holler Roast in Tennessee. But what I am is I'm straight and I'm honest about what we're doing here. I've shared my successes and my failures. Every single picture you see, none of them have been doctored, taken from different angles, any kind of crap like that. We've never lied about what we're doing. We've never exceeded claims as to what we actually are capable of doing here. We've shown you all along the way what we've done. We'll keep doing it. And the people out there that want to put somebody down that's doing better than they were yesterday, get off your damn computer that's made of plastic that you keep bitching about. Get out in the field, put your hands in the soil, put your hands in the aquaponics bed, put it somewhere, and get something done. If you have time to bitch about other people not doing good enough, you probably ain't doing jack diddly squat yourself. It's been Jack Spirico. Hope you've enjoyed this video. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around They said you should have a house the American way Dollar down, a dollar a month and you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.